What is worship? Who or what is the focus of worship? To answer that, if we look at Scripture, we find that there are about four different words that are translated as worship. In the Old Testament, the, way, the main word translated as worship, it basically means to bow down or to pay homage. In the New Testament, there are at least three words translated as worship. The key word very literally means to kiss toward. The other words that are frequently used refer to paying reverence to someone or something, to serve or to minister, and to revere, stressing a feeling of awe or devotion. Now, as I looked at those, there are two facts that stood out to me regarding these words. The first is that worship is very God-focused. That's something that's easily lost. If we're not careful, we get so focused on our preferences about worship, what we like and what we don't like, that we forget the purpose of worship. It is to glorify God. Right? It's not to please ourselves. It's not for our pleasure. It is to glorify God. The second truth that stood out to me is that worship involves both attitudes and actions. Right? There is to bow down, to revere. All of those things are a part of it. Worship is... It is as much an attitude as it is an action. In fact, the English word for worship was typically worship. And to mean it meant to worship someone or to worship something is to consider it worthy of our admiration and respect. What we worship and the way we worship reveals what is really important to us. So how do we worship God in a way that demonstrates He is Important. So what we're going to try to look at this morning, open your Bible to Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17 is what we're going to look at. That should be on page 680 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's word. Colossians 3 and 16. Let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Time of the message this morning is the worshiping church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, we want today... To worship you in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. We want to worship you today in a way that demonstrates that you are wonderful and you are amazing and you are so worthy of our worship and our devotion. So today, as we study this passage about worship, open our hearts and open our minds to you. Father, let your Holy Spirit come and and begin to speak these truths deep into our hearts that it would bring forth fruit in our lives. God, if if there is ever a time when we gather here as your church and we do what we do as a matter of of routine, if we do what we do as a matter of checking a box, God, today, make us aware of how wrong and how terrible that is. Let us understand that every time we gather in this place, we are gathering for a sacred purpose and we are gathering in your presence and we are seeking Lord, to do your will and to bring you glory. Let our hearts and minds be engaged in all that we do today. 
Speak to us through your word. Let it change our lives. Let it change who we are and how we are. And let us respond in ways that declare to a lost and a dying world that Jesus is Lord over our lives. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Don't let me get in the way of what you want done. Be glorified in all things. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. That you may be seated. Now, the context for what we're looking at today, it actually begins in verse 12. Verse 12 through 17, Paul gives instructions to disciples of Jesus Christ how they are to live. The basis of these instructions are found in the very first part of verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. We are to do all of the things from verses 12 through 17 because we are the elect of God. Because we are holy in Jesus Christ and because God, our father, has loved us. These instructions that he gives us, they largely deal with interpersonal relationships. Right? This is another reminder that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are not meant to do life together. We live and we do life together as members of a Christian community. Now, the section we're focusing on today deals specifically with worship. There were a couple of truths that I noticed as I was studying this passage this week. One is that all of life is involved in worship. Verse 16, but the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs that largely deals with what we would call a worship service, what we're doing right here, right now. But look at verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That deals in how we go out from here, what we do once we leave this place. Life outside of the worship service. So worshiping God, it's not limited just to gathering in a building. It's not limited to just singing songs. Worship, it deals with all of life. right? It it deals with our attitudes and our actions. But we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to live a certain way. But we are to do it with grace in our hearts. We are to do it with wisdom in our lives. We are to do it by giving thanks to God the Father through it. All of life is involved in worship. All of life, really, you could say all of life is worship. The way we live our lives basically demonstrates God's worth to us. How we live our life demonstrates God's worth to us. The key truth I want us to understand in relation to this is that I declare the worth of God by the way I worship God. I declare the worth of God by the way I worship God. This passage, it gives us three ways to worship God So that it declares his great worth to the world around us. Number one is to worship God through scripture. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, one of the reasons Paul wrote the book of Colossians is that there were false teachers troubling the church with all sorts of goofy man-made doctrines. They taught all kinds of unbiblical traditions and religious rules and human ideas about what God was like and what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, they tried really hard to harmonize their teaching with Scripture. 
But this attempt to harmonize the false with the true, it was failing. As Scripture declares the greatness of God, the excellencies of Christ, and the necessity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. While their teachings declared the greatness of the teachers, the excellencies of their special revelations, and the necessity of listening to them and only them. Since their teaching was in conflict with Scripture, the false teachers were urging the Colossian disciples to ignore Scripture and just follow them. Paul's admonition was for them to do exactly the opposite. Rather than get away from Scripture, they were to let Scripture dwell in their hearts. To dwell in their hearts richly. They were to go deeper and deeper into Scripture. Or perhaps it would be better to say they were to let Scripture go deeper and deeper into them. They were to ensure that Scripture was dwelling in their hearts in all wisdom. And they, this would be a way to protect them from the false teachers. As the false teachers came and began to say things that were not right, they would recognize the false doctrine because of their familiarity with what was true. Scripture would be in their heart and they could clearly see what was true and what was false. You and I, we need to let Scripture dwell in our hearts richly just as much as they did. You may ask, now how does this declare God's worth? How does... Letting the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly declare the worth of God. Scripture dwelling in our hearts richly declares God's worth because Scripture does not naturally dwell in anyone's heart. Few truths of Scripture are intuitive and natural. Think about some of the principles for life Scripture gives. Things like turn the other cheek. Do good to those that hate you. Deny yourself. Do all things without griping and complaining. Living those things out are not things that we naturally know and that we naturally do. Think about salvation. It's not intuitive or natural to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And that if we call upon Jesus in repentance and faith, He will save us from our sins. The truths of Scripture that lead us to salvation, sanctification, and a life lived for Jesus do not naturally dwell in our hearts. So we declare God's worth as we put forth the effort to study and do what is necessary to ensure that the Word of God is dwelling richly in our hearts. When I think of a group of people who lived that out, who, who demonstrated what it is to let the Word of Christ dwell in them richly in a way that declared the worth of God, I think of the Bereans from Acts chapter 17. The Bible says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Now the Bereans, they took three actions to declare God's worth by ensuring Scripture was dwelling in their hearts. The Bible says they received the Word with readiness, they searched the Scripture daily, and many of them believed. Now the pattern that they set is one that we can follow. Right? So we start the, the pattern by receiving Scripture. The first action they took to declare God's worth, to ensure that the Word of God was dwelling in their hearts richly, was that they were eager to listen to what Paul had to say from Scripture. Now, there are two attitudes in their eagerness to receive Scripture that we all need to develop. The first was the, the desire or the eagerness. They were eager to hear Paul proclaim Scripture. 
They desired to be where Scripture was proclaimed. The second was humility. They didn't come to the time when Paul was going to speak with an attitude that they already had a lock on everything. They didn't come with an attitude of, I know it all and I'm doing it all correctly, so I'm just listening to prove where Paul is wrong. They eagerly listened with a humble attitude. That is how we receive Scripture. That is the start to it. Secondly, research Scripture. Right? It says they searched the Scripture daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Even though they had a humble attitude, they were not naive. After listening, they went back to Scripture and they studied it for themselves to see if what Paul was saying was right. Now, in our day of e-Bibles and online Bibles and multiple personal Bibles, we may miss the significance of what they did. But let me ask you a question. How many personal Bibles existed in this day? Well, the answer is like zero. No one had their own personal copy of Scripture. So how did they search the Scriptures daily for themselves? They went to the synagogue where the Scriptures were stored. Imagine, imagine this was the only Bible that anybody in our church had. Right? So I would preach from the Bible, and then if you wanted to study the Bible, you would have to come to church, and you would have to stay here, and you would have to study the Bible for yourself. You would have to arrange your schedule in such a way that you could be here when no one else was, right? Because multiple people probably can't study the same Bible at the same time. That's what they did. They heard Paul preach. Then they came back to the synagogue on times when no one else was there so that they could study the Bible for themselves. That's how important knowing the Scripture was to them. And then finally, we, we have to respond to Scripture. The final action they took was they believed what Paul said when they discovered it was true. This belief would result in a massive shift of their belief system in life. Right? They, were, they were either Jews or they were Gentiles that had converted to Judaism. What Paul was saying about Jesus was not what they already believed. They already had a belief system in place that led to the way they lived their lives. What Paul was preaching was different than what they understood. What Paul was preaching, if they believed it, required them to change their lives. They didn't hear what Paul said, determine, well, that seems to be true, and then continue to live the way they had always lived. They didn't live the way they had always lived because that's what grandma lived like. They didn't believe what they always believed because that's what they had been taught as children. Instead, they searched the Scripture themselves, and when they saw that what Paul was saying was right, they adjusted their lives so that their beliefs and their lives were consistent with Scripture. The Bereans set an example for us that if followed, it will cause... Scripture to dwell in our hearts richly. And doing these things declares God's worth. We are declaring that God is worthy of spending time listening to His Word. We are declaring that God is worthy by spending time studying His Word. 
We are declaring that God is worthy by adjusting our lives and our beliefs to be consistent with His Word. We are saying that God alone is God. Not my preferences, not my will, not my want, but God is what is most important in my life. Now, another reason that they did this, that Paul admonishes the the Corinthians to let the word of Christ dwell in their heart richly, is something that the New King James doesn't make clear. But we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom so that we can teach and admonish one another. But the teaching and admonishing is connected to the Scripture. As Scripture dwells in our hearts by faith, as it dwells in our hearts richly, we are able to teach and to admonish one another. Now, teach as it's used here does not seem to refer to like teaching a class. It seems to refer far more to the idea of being able to just help another person by passing on what we have learned from Scripture. Now, let me show you how this could play out in our lives by using the example of the Bereans. You come to church eager to hear God's Word. You take notes. Then you go home and you search the Scripture yourself to see if what was proclaimed was true. Determining that it is, you adjust your belief and your life to fit with Scripture. Now, with all of the effort that you've just put forth with Scripture, it is going to be dwelling in your heart richly. And as it is, you will now have something that you can pass on to someone else. You will know something is true, not because the preacher said it, but because the Bible said it. You have studied it for yourself. You know in your heart that it is right. You have it in your heart. And now you can pass it on to another. And as you pass this on to another, they will see the worth that you have placed upon God from His Word. They will see that God is important enough to you for you to come to church and listen to the Word. They will see that God is important enough for you to study the Word. And they will see that God is important enough to you to change your life so that it is consistent with the Word. We declare God's worth in the way that we worship God through the Word of God. Secondly, we want to worship God through song. We're to sing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Now, if you want to stir up a debate in much of the church world, start a discussion about church music. What kind of music does God like best? Does God like southern gospel music or does God like contemporary Christian music? Does He like stamps, Baxter hymns, or praise choruses? What kind of musical instruments are acceptable for worship? Is it okay to use any instrument other than a piano and an organ in church? The reality is most of that stuff is not even remotely discussed in Scripture. Most of the discussion on worship songs in the church revolve around preferences and nothing more. This is what I like. This is what I've always had. This is what grandma did. This is what we've always done. This is what there is. What Scripture does tell us is about the words. 
It does tell us about the kind of songs that, we're ought, that we ought to sing in church. As we talk about it and we begin to kind of accept that, you know, it's not just the old songs that are okay, but the new songs are okay too. We also have to recognize that not all songs are okay. Right? Just because we like it or we want it doesn't mean it ought to be sung in church. But if we believe that God gives commands for worship, then we should only sing the type of songs that God has commanded us to sing. Every song that we sing or that any church sings in a corporate worship setting should fall to one of three God-inspired categories. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What do those mean? Well, Psalms originally referred to the book of Psalms, which was sung by the Jews of the temple and by the early Christians. For us today, it would include any song that is either very largely Scripture-based or is basically just Scripture put to music. Hymns are songs of praise which are often inspired by God's acts on behalf of His people. Hymns are also songs of praise which exalt the greatness and the glory of God very often by praising His attributes. Hymns are often also instructive. Spiritual songs are songs that are distinctly Christian in their lyrics. They deal with spiritual emotions and spiritual truth. They could be testimonies, prayers, or desires. So using that grid of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, let's think about the songs that we sang today. Did Scott lead us in worship of God or some sort of pagan practice that ought to be repented of? Well, the first type of song listed as psalms were any of the songs we sang like Scripture put to music. Well, the solid rock on 526 could be a hymn. It says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's just about a direct quote from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Lamb of God on page 302 focuses on Jesus as the Lamb of God, and that is surely taken from the words of John the Baptist who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. With hymns, that are in, any song that are inspired by God's acts for His people or that exalt His greatness or glory or attributes, we sing, Name of All Majesty. Sing, think about the many ways that song reminds us about the greatness, the glory, and the power of God. And it also reminds us about Jesus, God sending Jesus to die for our sins. We sing, We Have Come to Worship on page 207. And it, it would fall into this category as well. It instructs us to be His hands and touch the needy. It instructs us to pray. It instructs us to be His gospel and let it sound. And there's spiritual songs. We have come to worship would fall into this category as well. Its words are distinctly Christian. The themes and the testimonies about God, what God will do in us and through us and for us. The solid rock would also be a spiritual song as it's a continual testimony about what Jesus is to me. He is my hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. These are the kinds of songs we are supposed to sing in worship. Singing the kind of song that God says we're to sing, it declares His worth because we're saying His will, His want, His word. That is what matters. Not what I like, not what I want, not what I would have. But God has the right to declare and determine 
how we worship Him, even down to the songs that we sing. That is the declaration of His worth. But Scripture not only tells us what kinds of songs to sing, but how we are to sing these songs. Right? First, it says, sing from the heart. In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts. Singing is to come from grace-filled hearts. Grace-filled hearts are hearts that have been redeemed by the grace of God. Singing from the heart filled with grace should influence how we sing in two ways. First, is that we should mean what we sing. When we sing that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, we should be acutely aware of the fact that our salvation is built upon Jesus alone. Not our good deeds, not our jobs, not our family, not our church membership, but Jesus and Jesus alone is my hope. Whatever we sing, we should mean those words deeply. Secondly, singing with grace in our hearts should mean that we sing enthusiastically. Think about how worship is described in Scripture. The Scripture instruct us to shout to the Lord or to mumble to the Lord? Do people who worship God in Scripture feel a deep swell of emotion or are they bored? In Scripture, the people who sang and worshipped God, they felt it deeply. Our enthusiasm and worship flows out of all that God has done for us in Christ. When we sing, we are singing about the fact that the great and the awesome God has loved us so deeply that even though we sinned against Him, He sent His Son to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. How could we not be enthusiastic in worship, mumbling in worship, boredom in worship, being unenthusiastic in worship. It says far more about our hearts than it does about anything about the worship service itself. We are to sing from our hearts. Secondly, we are to sing to the Lord. Paul said, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It is not uncommon for us to be told to sing to the Lord, especially in the Psalms. Uh, we see this in Psalm 98, 95, 96, and 100, just to name a few. The idea behind this is that God is our only audience as we sing. We shouldn't be concerned about what people next to us will think if we sing loud. We shouldn't care about what people sitting next to us will think if we raise our hands. We shouldn't worry about the fact that we can or we can't sing. Our focus is on God. At the same time, our focus is to be on God so that we don't really notice what the person sitting next to us is doing. We don't notice that they raise their hands. We don't notice that they sing off key. We don't notice that they're a little louder than we are. All we notice is that we are worshiping 
our great and our awesome God. We declare God's worth when we sing this way because this kind of worship, it flows out of a love and a devotion to God. It says that what He has done for me is significant. It says that what He has done for me is amazing and it is life-changing. And so I sing. I sing from the heart and I sing to the Lord. We declare God's worth in the way that we worship God through song. And then finally... Worship God through my life. Paul writes in verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything we do, word or deed, done in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, there are two other passages, I think, that, that bear weight on what Paul says in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are to do all that we do in the name of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. Of God. Now, all is pretty inclusive. In Colossians, Paul specifically mentions words and deeds. In 1 Corinthians, he mentions eating and drinking. This is all of life. There is no aspect of our lives that is not meant to be done in the name of Jesus for the glory of God. This would be our values, our priorities, our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, and our words. This would include how we treat our spouse and our children. This would include the way we work on the job. This would include how we act at Walmart and our children's sporting event. This would include how we deal with others as we talk about politics and religion. There is no area of life where the disciple of Jesus does not do it in the name of Jesus for the glory of God. One of the big reasons for this is because we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Jesus everywhere we go. In fact, Paul says in some ways we speak for God and God speaks through us. Now that is a powerful and a weighty statement. We are ambassadors for Jesus everywhere we go. Everything we do is to be done in the name of Jesus for the glory of God because we are Christ's ambassadors to a lost and a dying world. Can we, does the way we treat people, can we treat people the way we treat people in the name of Jesus for the glory of God? Can we sling demeaning insults at people who differ from us politically in the name of Jesus and for the glory of God? Can we use demeaning terms to describe people from other cultures in the name of Jesus for the glory of God? Can we be involved in sexual immorality, whether pornography, fornication, adultery, or homosexuality in the name of Jesus for the glory of God? Can we teach our kids that success in sports and education or life is more important than church 
in the name of Jesus for the glory of God? Can we gossip in the name of Jesus for the glory of God? Can we listen to gossip in the name of Jesus for the glory of God? Can we get drunk in the name of Jesus for the glory of God? Can we tell vulgar jokes in the name of Jesus for the glory of God? There is no area of our life that is not to be lived in the name of Jesus and the glory of God. The greatest testimony about the life-changing power of Jesus is not given in the fact that we come to church on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays. The greatest testimony about the life-changing power of Jesus is lived out in the world. As ambassadors for Jesus Christ, people make life-altering decisions about Jesus and His church based upon how we are and how we act. That is why we are to do all that we do in the name of Jesus for the glory of God. Our lives are meant to be lived as an act of worship. Paul says in Romans 12, 2, that we are to live our lives as a living sacrifice. The NIV says that that is your spiritual act of worship. That is an accurate idea because what were the sacrifices in the Old Testament? They were acts of worship. You and I, we don't just worship Jesus here. We worship Jesus when we leave here. We worship Jesus as we go on the job. We worship Jesus in our home and how we treat our family. We worship Jesus on the social media. We worship Jesus always in all ways. And we declare His worth and how we act in those times. It is an act of worship that declares the great worth of God. When our values, priorities, attitudes, actions, reactions, and speech reflect the character and the nature of Jesus. One last truth to point out and we'll close. Paul says, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The way I read this is that thanksgiving is meant to be a part of all that we just talked about. We are to be worshipped through the Word with thanksgiving. I mean, we ought to be thankful. We are gathered today openly. We have no fear of the secret police coming in. There's little fear of anything bad happening. We, we have our own copies of the Bible. We have multiple copies of the Bible. We ought to be a thankful people. We ought to be thankful as we sing songs to the Lord. Thankful as we're reminded of all that He has done. Thankful as we're reminded of how great God is and that He would think upon us. We're to be thankful as we live in the world. We are given the great privilege of being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. We're given the great privilege of being able to represent Him in all that we do in word or deed. To show people the greatness and the goodness of our Savior and our God. The people that have received as much as we have from God ought to be the most thankful people on the earth. All that we do should just be an overflow of how grateful we are to God. Right, let's stand as our musicians come forward.